Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statement podcast... We upset everybody with our thoughts about food... We hopefully win everyone back with our thoughts on football. And we talk about the 40p rate and Labour's tax farrago. Stephen, the budget. I know we have done one budget podcast already and it was good. I enjoyed it very much. But um, I think we just talked a little bit there about Labour's support for the tax cuts, the moving of the threshold raised to um, £12,500, that's the rate at which you start paying income tax, and then the moving of the rate at which you start paying the higher rate threshold to £50,000, which were both conservative manifesto pledges but have been brought forward. And because you are someone who can remember what's in the Labour's 2017 manifesto, you pointed out they also were in Labour's manifesto. But Jeswe Ken got into a bit of trouble at PMQs because he tried to attack Theresa May, is this right? Yeah. And then kind of when they were, she went, yeah, but you well support our tax cuts. And he sort of tried to imply that he didn't. But obviously, John McDonnell has already said that he does. And then there was a briefing afterwards in which it was not entirely clear what was going on. And it kind of underlines what you said in your column, right? Which is the, the issue is the fact that there's a lack of kind of communication and message discipline coming from the top of Labour. Yeah, I mean, so this thing, this is, this is a policy... Uh which has been in place since November 2016, when Hammond first uh, committed to this, so before the uh, snap election. Uh, Labour, um, I mean, at the time I wrote a piece just going, there's no point in this, because the reason why it will not win the voters over who it affects is the same reason that Labour activists are not kicking off about it, which is that no one really believes mm. that Labour will, will do it. That analysis, I think, obviously has a big problem called the 2017 election mm-hmm. when uh, people in that 45 to 50k band did move decisively into the Labour column, uh, which I think means that the uh, McDonnell logic for backing the tax cut from a political perspective, you can't fault it, right? Like, also- But I think there's a really interesting thing about that is, is it also, is there a kind of correlation causation point about the fact that people who earn that much are much more likely, for example, to be university graduates and are therefore much more likely to have voted Remain and are much more likely to be culturally labor e rather than if we think about that kind of that kind of split that there now is on culture rather than economics down the country yeah i mean so so i don't think that it was the sole reason but it is of course easier for people to prioritize culture over economics when uh, there is no economic cost for mm. doing so now i think there is an open question and uh, you know i genuinely do not know the answer to this one right like i mean yeah um i mean speaking 
personally as someone who, who is a beneficiary of this tax card, right? I do think it is obscene that I am essentially being given like Xbox money, right? Like it's not it's not very much money for any individual winners uh, while the public realm is falling apart. And we know that there is a rising support for tax rises. I suspect because people look around their built environment, they see home, they see that every you know every building with an awning is a home of multiple occupation, as one person uh, put it very powerfully on Twitter, and they go, um, "Do you know what? Actually, I this is a derisory amount of money per each tax taxpayer." Let's do something with the common good, right? Well, so- my um, my partner said this on, on Twitter after the budget, which is that every budget since 2010 for us as a double income, no kids couple living in London, has, uh, we've ended up richer out of it. Yeah. And like, if there were people who needed to make sacrifices and tighten their belts, if that was the premise, then we could have stood to tighten our belts without, you know, I just, I think that when you look at the distributional impact of particularly the benefit changes and the way they fall so heavily on people in lower income, it is simply not fair. I mean, I don't like to get all... Thunderous, although I did enjoy watching Polly Toynbee having a pop at George Osborne. That was great, Telly. It made me feel really happy, uh, not just because I agree with her about the fact that his cuts were ideologically driven and he did, you know, um, pursue a narrative that people on benefits are lazy when actually he should have looked at a world of work that meant that people can have a full-time job and still not be able to afford to pay all their bills. But also it just made me happy that I live in a country where someone can savagely bollock the former Chancellor of the Exchequer on telly. You know what I mean? In a time when journalists are kind of getting murdered and... Trump's giving mad conferences and Twitter. I thought that makes me feel happy that, you know, God bless Polly and all who bollock former politicians like that. Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, slightly soiled by his presence in his current job, but it was so good. And the, way that, <laughs> and the way that he laughed. I think that was bad. And I thought it was really telling because I know, I can, you know, he was three, three against one, right? This is a news night for anybody who hadn't watched it. And I think that was, and it was him, what, Suzanne Evans and Ash Sarko of Novara. Um, and I think, obviously, in that situation, you are kind of quite, and someone's that, not rude, because she wasn't, but she was brutal to him. And I can understand why your your first instinct is to kind of nervously laugh. But it did come off very badly as kind of like, she's been very earnest, like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, I mean. Which is why, presumably, George Osborne knows that he comes off like that. And it's why he was not, unlike Gordon Brown, didn't spend his entire time as Chancellor chafing that he didn't get to be leader. Well, he always understood, not just as Chancellor, but right from the beginning when there was this idea that one of the young modernisers had to run, not to win, but to maintain their viability. Um, ironically, I've just realised there is a, a very, very strong correlation between Cameron's leadership bid and Corbyn's in that uh, aspect, if nothing else. Uh, and actually, again, in the, both MacDonald and Osborne, although they privately have a number of frustrations about some of the limitations of the principle of their the principle the front men yeah they, they know full well that uh, Corbyn and Cameron have abilities and a reach into bits of the electorate that McDonnell and Osborne simply mm. in my view could not uh, ever hope to replicate um so kind of back to that the problem though is this is a, a week which is solely the fault of uh Corbyn's limitations right he cannot think on his feet he prefers in parliamentary statements to do uh kind of quite rote uh so you put this in the column. This is because the traditionally response to the budget comes from the opposition leader, not yeah. the shadow chancellor. And then the shadow chancellor kind of gets to have a go the next day. Yeah. So he just had a, got a script that was all about Tory austerity and actually a budget where that was not the top line. That's not how they were selling it. There's a lot of austerity buried in that budget. Certainly he wasn't able to trim his sales in time to, to, to reverse out of that problem. Yeah. And the leader of the opposition does often have a bit of a nightmare because, I mean, it, I mean, it is a stupid way to, to you know, to, 
scrutinise finance statements, but of course it will never change because you'd have to be really dumb if you were the government to go, hey, I know, why don't, why don't we unstack this deck? Um, but yeah, he, he had a, effectively a very rote speech, uh, including this idea that these tax cuts were ideological, which does mean that you have this slightly weird thing where it's just like these tax cuts and we've supported since November 2016 and we're still supporting today are ideological, but we'll keep them. Now, I mean, so the open question, which obviously we've gone back and forth a bit on is whether or not politically the group of people earning 45 to 50 grand and above who voted Labour uh, last time, who didn't before, are actually willing to put their money where their mouth is and vote uh, against the tax. I, to be honest, sort of think they probably are because the amount is actually so derisory per individual taxpayer, right? You're not actually talking about a particularly big win. And the promise of the Corbyn project is that you will feel good about voting Labour, that you'll feel that you're voting for good things. I think that was more... I, I have to say I experienced it with a certain amount of schadenfreude having lived through a number of pious lectures in the autumn of 2015 about the way that Labour abstained on a second reading and then voted for um, yeah, against on a third reading a welfare bill for exactly those same kind of electoral calculation reasons to then see basically as I see it John McDonnell making the same choice which is, is not a hill that he wishes to die on, being handing Conservatives going into an election campaign, a sort of Labour's tax bombshell uh, headline. And, and therefore, again, for, this, for sums which, as you say, are quite derisory in terms of the revenue raising, deciding not to, to do that. But I just wish, I hope it ushers in a slightly more, an era of slightly more sensible coverage of Labour as a political party rather than a kind of moral project. Well, I think actually the interesting thing about it, right, is I think, you know, I mean, so as I said in Colin, this doesn't really matter uh, politically in terms of damaging them because their critics internally have very little credibility with mm. uh, uh, the party membership and no one normal cares about a budget this far out from right. an election. Um, but what I think is interesting, right, is that this is not uh, a coverage of Corbyn and his feed and kind of, you know, that sort of very sneering register that a lot of mm. political journalists have had. This is basically a, so your political project are you really going to forego more than enough money to end the benefits freeze mm. in order to give uh, you know people who are quite well paid uh, a tax cut? And this is a question that they have struggled to deal with, whereas the usual kind of fart noises that get directed at them, they are much better at wafting away. I'd yes, I agree. No, I know, no, no, but I do agree with you because you're right. The coverage from the political journalists has been much more just regular what you'd expect of any normal political party. It's, it's the kind of thing that Labour might have encountered in 2013 or 2009. Like it's, it's entirely the same set of questions. It's not treating Corbyn as some sort of special silly little force. Like this is standard bread and butter stuff for an opposition. Like this yeah. is what your stated aim is. You seem to have done something that's against it. How do you reconcile those two? It is then quite worrying because one of the things that I thought was an interesting note of the last election was Labour's, you know, they did a thing of saying, you know, we're going to cost everything that's in the manifesto. We know that we've got a problem on economic credibility. Like here is everything you can be, you know, the, and then they had a whole attack line that was like the only number that's in the Tory manifesto was the page numbers. And then people would ask Jeremy Corbyn about, are you going to unfreeze benefits? And he'd go, yes, of course. And then they kind of, you get a briefing that would go, we'll look at it. And then he'd go, yes, of course. And then there'd be another brief encounterman, right? And and like it never, he never got a final answer, which I find is quite worrying because that is something that Donald Trump does do, right? Is that he will just give two completely contradictory answers to the same question and everybody picks the one that they want to be true until, you know, and, and, and you kind of, and therefore he can't really be held to account for promises that he's made because he's made both sets of promises. Yeah. I mean, I think, 
the other thing is I actually always think that what when politicians do that, I think it matters significantly less than people think mm. because um, basically people do treat politics. Yeah, not not so much they treat politics like brands, but but people interact with a political party in the same way they do with a brand, right? So, you know, if if someone in their mind, right, you go to bed, buy a Hoover and you have an idea in your head, then there are like a Hoovers you can afford which aren't as good, a Dyson, which you know is very good, but it's not in your price bracket. And then those like Henry Hoovers that people have in schools, which everyone assumes must be rubbish because they're But they're adorable. Used every yeah, but if it if, if it was good, it wouldn't need to be adorable. Uh, just people's like some, I have no idea if any of those things I've just said about those brands are true. Yeah. Um, and this is the thing is that I, people basically assume various things about the Labour brand. You know, that mm. it's like the party for good times. It's kind. It looks after people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I do think you know, despite instinctively, and this may just be that I'm you know clinging to the wreckage of a dead ideology, then um, it's never a good idea to go into an election like. Yeah, going to actually going ninety five percent of people will not have a tax cut was a very will not have power, a tax rise. Will not have a tax rise was mm. a very powerful message yeah. for them. And I would if I would then be reluctant to be like it's now eighty percent because it does add this idea. You know, the Tories can pop and go like, well, why not seventy or fifty or you know, can you trust them not to do this? However, right, I actually think the bigger problem is not that um, you know because with Corbyn when he does that, it's not that he is um, being mendacious. Uh, it's just that. There is a, although there are some issues on which he's perfectly happy to uh, give misleading answers, there are very, he really, really struggles to hold a line if he doesn't believe it on air, uh, which creates confusion. Yes, which was very funny during the EU referendum. Yeah, like, yeah, I agree with you. He's not somebody for who, who who lies fluently or delivers a line fluently that he's personally not committed to because yeah, he hasn't had any practice doing that, really. Which, I mean, I think this is the, and yeah, and. Yeah, from a kind of like Corbyn's thought perspective, I'm continually fascinated by the things he is and is not willing to uh, be untruthful about. Uh, from a yeah, from a kind of stress testing of Labour's readiness to fight and win an election, um, that feels to me, and of course they may be fine, they were fine last time uh, in terms of gaining votes, it feels to me like the equivalent of Theresa May's roboticness, right, which we all knew was something that was true about her in the run-up to the election campaign and it, voters didn't have a problem with it for a long time mm. and then suddenly voters had quite a big problem with it and that feels to me like if you were stress testing if it was like if Cor if if labor's message system was a full board you would say it was making a sound that might just be creaking this mm. week but it also could just be a sign the foot is going to go through the floor it's also very interesting about a revelatory of corbyn's priorities i thought his reply back to philip hammond this week because you wrote an interesting piece during the election about how he had dealt with his uh sort of weird stuff that he used to do in tv interviews um, and he doesn't do it. occasionally i'm afraid the anti-semitism crisis over the summer did bring out something like we didn't that is very unfortunate. But um, when he gave his response to Theresa May, uh, to Philip Hammond in the Commons this week, he just shouted. He delivered it all at one tone. And obviously there was lots of ba uh, barracking, but it it was almost unlistenable too because it was, you know, whereas Hammond held the floor and actually was not, I mean, he's not Mr. Charisma, but like he managed to deliver a budget that had some variations in pace and, and some pauses in it. Whereas... Um, Corbyn kind of went full hairdryer. And I thought, well, that's interesting that that's a bit that they haven't fixed. They haven't said to him, you don't have to do like, It's not like a, a rally. You don't have to deliver it all at that kind of like, megaphone volume. What I think is actually interesting about that is at the beginning of his uh, career as leader of opposition, when obviously he had never addressed a full house and never addressed the house uh, 
from this backdrop. He used to shout all the time because mm. in the chamber, uh, it's uh, loud. It's loud, and you feel. And I mean, this is the, you. You feel as if you have to have to shout because it's so loud. But um, but the microphones pick it up for TV. That's the, the interesting thing. Yeah, and and then he got a lot better midway through mm. at, uh, at ignoring the shouting and doing it for TV and to clip it well for Facebook. Now the fascinating thing is is that. Um, Recently, there have been a couple of things. His Brexit, his first Brexit response, second Brexit response uh, was very strong. Uh, the first Brexit response, shouting into the mic again. This response, shouting into the mic again. And I do think there's been an interesting um, kind of falling back, which is odd because it's the same office. But um, yeah, like for example, I feel that like why are they doing six questions on Brexit? Labour is split on it. He can't do detail. It makes no sense for them to kind of intrude on their own private grief when they should just do one question on Brexit so they can say, look, we've mentioned it, and then return to the things that he is stronger than to And the ones on. that he can clip then, for Facebook, as you can, point yeah. out. It's one of those weird things where there has been, um, yeah, and obviously, you know, everyone occasionally has uh, phases at work where they are uh, less committed or less effective than they are usually. But they are, to me, at least a couple of interesting straws in the wind. And the performances haven't been as good. The message discipline has been worse. and um, He has been a lot less visible too. Yeah. And there was some polling out about his ratings that slipped back. And I think one of the academics said, well, hang on a minute, it's not really very fair to, to say people have turned off by him. Actually, what it means is it's about salience and visibility. And when he's not out there in an election campaign, people can't see him. Like that's what, particularly among young people, that does seem to cause a sort of slide back. But he's doing a lot of kind of roadshow stuff, as I understand, getting out and around the country. He's never been a massive fan of parliament Anyway, um, in terms of that, like, he's not the kind of you know he's not like Stella Creasy style going to be submitting to very technical motions to get things through to put on whatever. But it does feel a bit as though his foot is off the gas. Whereas I think that John McDonnell, who I saw uh, at the Mar program on Sunday, is kind of always hustling. You know, he's always trying to talk to people. He's always trying to win people over. He deals with criticism very well in both in public and in private right i think that's the interesting thing he's always trying to be kind of well look, let, come in and let me convince you let me talk to you let me convince you like he just seems to want it a lot more and he, and i think that you know he, i think he's a much more he's it's he's weirdly he has ended up being given that they were both so much associated with each other before the leadership they have taken quite different paths since then i would say well, yeah, definitely in terms of sort of uh, tone and approach, although I think on policy there's uh, still a, a huge amount of mm. unity. But I think it's been a, yeah, a really striking week, partly because for the first time, I actually think since May became Prime Minister, right? And yeah, to reiterate what we said uh, uh, in the budget special, right? This is, this is a budget aimed uh, firmly at people who are concerned by, but not directly affected by the consequences of austerity, which was their real pain point. Uh, and their idea, which uh, I think is potentially quite risky, uh, they can hold on to all of those Leave voters once Brexit is this is Labour, uh, the Tories, this is the Tories is settled, right? But their essential plan, right, is they're going to hold on to the vote the uh, the Leave voters they won from Labour and from UKIP last time, and they're going to win back people who voted for them in 2015 who didn't like the tone on social issues and were concerned about the condition of the public realm. And you have a variety of uh, kind of socially liberal measures and, um, you know, kind of minorly ameliorative measures to sand off the edges of austerity plus a tax cut. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that will work, but it is the first time since the election when they've hit on a political message that I can conceive of working, mm. which is quite, so I think it's been quite an interesting week in terms of the 
relative uh, form and strength of, of the two parties' strategies vis-a-vis the next election. Of course, they could both revert back to form in a fortnight's time, making everything we've just said redundant. <laughs> For a couple of decades between the First and Second World Wars, something mysterious happened. There were murders in country houses, on golf courses, in far-flung parts of the globe and quaint English villages. No fictional character was safe. Because these events were all fictional, the plots of novels that flooded the market in the 1920s and 30s. People couldn't get enough of all of the inventive ways that writers like Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers and more could think of for people to die. This period came to be known as the golden age of detective fiction, and for good reason. So that's what I'm going to be doing in this podcast, telling the stories that lurk in the shadows of the famous detective novels. If you've ever stayed up late reading under the covers to find out who done it, then this podcast is for you. Find us at shedoneitshow.com, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as shedoneitshow, and in all major podcast apps. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. So uh, we went on another podcast school trip to the theatre, to Theatre Royal Stratford East, which is very nice. Weirdly, I never actually managed to uh, go to it before, though I hear it was one of your haunts during your younger days. Are you eating a biscuit? No, Are you I'm eating a biscuit eating during this podcast I'm recording? Not, Is that I'm what's happening here? <laughs> um, uh, very famous theatre, Joan Littlewood's old theatre. Um, I went to see a play called The Wolves, which is about a young women's, in America, but it's nonetheless a football team. I, we, so I've been writing a, I've been writing a book. I don't know if I've mentioned this, Stephen, but I've been writing a, a chapter that has quite a lot to do about women's exclusion from sport and um, about the kind of way that there were lots of women's teams in the early 20th century. And then the FA in 1921 decreed, basically, you can't use any of our pitches. None of our referees are allowed to ref for you and kind of really strangled um, the idea of women's football. And I, you know, my dad was into, is into cricket. Uh, growing up in Worcester, there's not a decently sized league team anywhere. I'm going to say the league in the way that implies that. I mean, like, I, I guess... You mean like a professional football No, I mean, there's like, there is a Worcester team, but I mean, it's in like the Dr. Martins League, if that even still is a thing. The nearest play- team who would grace the premiership ever, I would say, would probably be Villa. Mm. Um, so, you know, I never grew up kind of going to football games. The f- first football game I went to, there was a very unpleasant incident where a guy who was dressed as Santa was supposed to parachute into the stadium and instead clipped the stadium roof and fell 60 feet. He broke his pelvis, but survived. Um, So I didn't go to any more football matches after that. But um, I'm really interested because you are a massive Arsenal fan. I am. And one of the things that I find really interesting about football is like, it's a, it's sort of, it's kind of, I wouldn't say man grease, which is a really unpleasant term, but in the sense that it kind of gives men primarily an sort of endless source of, small talk so when you watched that play last night did it make you did it feel like did it feel football-y 
Or did it feel women-y? So the fascinating thing, so I loved it, right? I thought it was really brilliant. And I think, uh, you know, everyone should uh, go and see it. It's very cheap until November something. Yeah, but also, and you, you might get a chance to see some uh, Labour royalty, right? So Margaret Hodge is now chair of yeah. Theatre Royal Society and um, Blessed Harriet of Harmon was also there last night. Yeah. I, I glimpsed her, looking as ever incredibly youthful. Yeah, uh, yeah, she is She is aging very well. I really need to get the name of her moisturiser. Uh, but um, the, um, but so, yeah, really good. And I thought uh, that it was very good as a kind of, you know, thing about, you know, human relations and female friendship. Obviously, you didn't like it as much, which makes me think that it is fundamentally a very good uh, sports play, but everyone should go and see it and then you can adjudicate on which one of us is right. But um, Well, I know I did like it, but I saw... I, it was very weird because I went to also see Dance Nation at the Almedia, which was their last show, which was about competitive, um, like, cheer dancing, you know, Merry American, that kind of very high octane and that was all which was a much more this was a very realist play whereas that was a surreal play where they all started kind of ravening like wolves and eating actually weirdly they were they they, yeah and someone started kind of huge amounts of blood came out of them and then there were lots of monologues that were sort of slightly dream state whereas this was 90 minutes straight through and it happened in I think four scenes that just followed on from each other and it was all yeah. eminently realist and I was really surprised that I, I I thought both of them were very good but neither of them made me fall in love and I was really surprised about that because I just wonder if it's just a busman's holiday maybe I'm just tired of women yeah, could be whereas you know you've you know I mean you, you you know you've got women around but you're not writing about them like five days a week so it's true and I it's odd because I keep saying to people like, oh, what's the book called and I keep being I for some reason the the number of fights keep I keep being like it's the history of feminism in Eight, nine, ten, twelve. It was eight, and then it ended up being nine because I separated out equal work and equal leisure. Right. Okay. okay. Um, uh, that explains why I feel in the number. I feel uncertain <laughs> about the number. Some um, fights. Uh, so I really liked it partly because I did love how naturalistic it was and how much it did feel like the kind of conversations teenagers have. You know, their kind of intimacy and casual cruelty. And but I think you're exactly right. And the you know the the, the you know the thing about football, and you particularly notice this. Uh, with Arsenal, right, where like there are you have a huge uh, kind of social uh, diversity uh, of its fan base. You know, it's one of the the country's biggest clubs, but it does give you a weird kind of yeah. When you meet another one, right, it it, it is kind of well, it is the old school tie, but it's slightly more egalitarian because like, yeah, people can watch match of the day. And it also kind of because it's a narrative thing and it's constantly changing. It does also give you a, a constant safe reservoir of conversation, which is why I think it's really interesting. Particularly because Parliament's so male-dominated, I will quite often walk into a green room behind backstage at a TV show, and and there'll be a male politician there, and another male politician walk in. You know, sometimes I know Ali McGovern is very big into football, you know, it's not entirely exclusively male thing. This, but and they will kind of go, oh well, you know, saw your team did whatever, and they've got something that is completely safe as small talk, that there's no overtone to it. Whereas there's no kind of feminine equivalent for that, because even if you start talking about fashion, that kind of turns into like a you know, are you allowed to talk about female politicians' appearance? Like, do some people think that it's, you know, it's 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 shallow? Um, and it's just not untense in the same way. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Is it is a because yeah, one of the weirdest interactions one both participates and sees as a presenter is that kind of pre-green room of two people who are basically going on air to have a fight. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, and this kind of thing where it's just like you can just where like, and you know, you know, things may overrun. You know, they don't know how long they're going to be. And yeah, the joy of football, which I think is yeah, one of the kind of characters who's travelled the world, was one of the reasons why she's so good at it, is she says, well, you know, everyone, everyone across the world uh, plays it. 
And I mean, I think there are lots and lots of reasons why football is the world's most popular sport, obviously, because it's the best of the sports. But I think um, it's partly because, um, and the fascinating thing is in the States, uh, soccer is a girls game, weirdly. uh, It's sort of like rounders to their baseball, isn't it, I guess? Um, Now, so, you know, I think it is partly that its joy is in its sheer unfairness, right? It's so much more low scoring than basically any... Uh, equivalent game you know, than hockey than you know, than basically any other equivalent uh, team game, um, and it is deeply unfair because goals are so rare. Uh, a team uh, can play exceptionally badly and somehow uh, still win, or a team can play exceptionally well and somehow still lose. Under Arsene Wenger, of course, Arsenal used to play exceptionally well and somehow still lose. Now we seem to have this new thing where we're just utterly terrible the most games, yet we're somehow out on a 14-game unbeaten streak or something improbable. I much prefer undeserved victories, I've realised. But that also means that when you play it in a park, right, I mean, I have never been a good footballer. Uh, I used to at least have the trick of being quite fast, so I just kick the ball past the fullback and run. Now I'm uh, increasingly losing any pace I ever had, which means I've just become a really ineffective winger. But you can still occasionally have a, a game against a much better team, even in a park, where you're just utterly dominated. Your goalkeeper has a you know has a, a, a blinder, or their forwards just miss loads of sitters, and you somehow win with a late late goal, right? Which I think makes it a much more pleasant game, a to play in a park or to watch, because there is just a kind of um, yeah, there's a tension uh, and a, you know, two football. And it's so simple, right? There's no, like, try goals or... You, you mean, know, like, conversions? Whatever it is they do in rugby. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, there is, there is like, a weird class element, right? And I, I know that there are parts of the non-London country where rugby is not a sport played by posh people, but... Yeah, I, I was going to say, don't say that in, like, Northern Ireland. But I, I, I at least, uh, struggle to get over the fact that I associate rugby very strongly with the kind of person who at university would come into the TV room when match of the day is and go, oh, football, not a civilised game. I prefer something where people occasionally break their necks. Ha, 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 ha. A lot of and people from like, the uh, deep south were there at the Oxford College. Yeah, and it's just like, it's just like go, go find our horse to fillet. But, um, yeah, like, <laughs> just like, it's just like, I just associate rugby really strongly with that type of person. Um... I'll be all right in a minute. I think I really wanted to ask you because you were brought up by your mum. Was it her that got you into football? Does she interested in football? Like, who was it who introduced you? Because I always sort of assume that I missed out because my dad didn't introduce me to it. But so she's kind of an ambient Arsenal fan. Uh, we're all <laughs> go on. We're, well, we're all Arsenal fans going back from my uh, granddad, who this is kind of a grim story now. I think about it, who didn't want to support Spurs because he didn't want to support a Jewish team. A Jewish team, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and Arsenal were cooler. I mean, so yeah, I mean, ignoring the horror, yeah, like they're, you know, so, and then they lived in Highbury for a long time. So my mum occasionally went with him when he was small. And somehow, even though she, so she kind of follows it in a kind of like, you know, she will go, oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not this, as sure about this, this Spanish guy we have now, right? So she follows it kind of vaguely. And um, and so kind of, I was sort of socialised as an Arsenal fan. And whenever Arsenal would like win, uh, a, you know, win something big like the league. If there was a game where we were going to wrap it up, you know, we would go to a friend or to a bar or somewhere 
to to watch it or, or whatever. So kind of I, I kind of got it vaguely existed as an Arsenal fan through her. But actually, in terms of your point about being male Greece, I only really started to follow football fairly late um, in, you know, kind of, you know, and in secondary school. Again, because it was a kind of thing that you can talk about mm. with essentially anyone. Yeah, people would go, oh, you know, do you like football? And then obviously because, you know, all uh, all 12-year-olds lie to one another all the time. You go, yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, who do you like? Oh, I like Arsenal. And then obviously back then because Arsenal, you know, used to win things, that was quite a pleasant experience. And so that's when I really got into it. Um, yeah, so I guess it... It is kind of one of those odd things, and I guess it comes primarily from my granddad. Um, but it is also one of those weird things, which if I ever uh, did decide to have children, which would probably be quite a big change of priorities, but let's just roll with it for a moment. Um, it's one of those things I definitely would want to inoculate with them. One, because it's the best sport, but two, because it is a, a really useful uh, social leveller. And basically, in every job I've ever worked, uh, following football has been socially useful, right? It was socially useful at Legoland. It is socially useful in the media. It was socially useful when I worked in a bookshop, right? Because it is just something which with people who you often don't have very much in common with, who you're thrown together through kind of circumstance or being at the same press conference or whatever, you can go, oh, I saw your lot got gubbed last night. Uh, yeah. And it is, I mean, yeah. it is, I realise I'm basically going, do you know what's great, Helen? Patriarchy. That's going to be my book. <laughs> patriarchy and 10 unfair advantages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I know, I do, I agree with you. I feel like it's a language that I don't speak. Um, and it's really, it, yeah, I, and that's what I kind of find interesting about it. And I and I don't know whether or not, you know, some of the, the kind of women being locked out of sport, I think is deliberate, like in the case of what the FA did. Um, and some of it is just kind of, grown up from the idea that women sort of aren't entitled to leisure time in quite the same way that they, you know, you can't imagine women being like, well, I've got to go off and play golf for a day. I mean, maybe now you could, but maybe 20, 30 well, yeah, years ago. That's whole, whole kind of like the weird sort of um, way that it is. And this is definitely is something which I think is, uh, yeah, it's interesting something where you can see a kind of cultural expectation changing, um, but the kind of cultural expectation of like, oh, I'll be home soon dear mm. and that being even when both when, we're, when the female partner works yeah uh, i think that's very true and also that you would take your sons to a football match but not your daughters i think that's changed really fast as well like i, I most people i know who take their kids to football matches take all their children yeah and i think that the really interesting thing i mean so hope so the other thing about arsenal is as well as being uh the uh, boring this team no sorry anymore. but as well as being you know uh, a team with a very successful history uh, you know, actually, unlike uh, Potichino, Wenger has actually won trophies in the last half decade. Just throwing that out there for any Spurs fans listening. Uh, they are far and away the most successful team in women's football in this country by a kind of country mile. Had a period of, uh, you know, relative decline, still, you know, much better than most other clubs, but nothing to our history. We now have a new uh, coach called Joe Montemero. He's Australian. He uh, used to watch Arsenal on TV. He has, uh, you know, really got them playing wonderful stuff uh absolutely demolished Chelsea 5 nil, and I think are I would say definitely the um the finest performance by a women's football club uh in uh English history the tragedy is that it was although the highlights were on free-to-air television then all of the women's football league stuff is on BT Sport which I think I can see why they've done it from getting the money right away but I think there was an opportunity uh and i think you know one of the interesting i think it's actually a, a, it's like a tech yeah. startup in a way isn't yeah. it what you want to do if you launch a tech startup is you want to kind of give it away free 
at first to get it to many people as possible and then you look at all like the same thing I guess our paywall strategies right at some point you just need to get viewer eyeball, and then you kind of go okay now we put we now we now we monetize and I suppose that that by not being ever being on the BBC you've reduced your ability to build up a new audience that then might later be willing to pay yeah, and there is this kind of you know whenever sort of I would say this on Twitter most people will agree and they say well you know the women's game is is never gonna you know it's never gonna attract uh, the same uh, well no you always say so the, the women's game just isn't as good and you kind of go okay but there are loads and loads of people who follow non-league teams. Like, if you want to follow literally the best footballers in the world, then of course, then you follow, follow the, the f- five or six teams at the top of the Premier League. But there are plenty of people for whom it's more of a social experience or they like following an underdog or they just find it warmer and more friendly to follow. Well, it's like Dulwich Hamlet everyone gets very excited about. Yeah, I mean, this thing is like, you know, I mean, I would struggle to claim that every game I have watched Arsenal play has been a, you know... A thriller. Been, has been a thriller <laughs> or, you know, a testament to good football, good defending, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Yes, and and also the reason why I think it's nonsense, right, is that uh, no one now seriously contends that you can't see uh, tip uh, top quality tennis uh, in the women's game. Why? Because the amount of money in now is finally starting to be relatively mm. equal, and uh, and and also crucially, no one watching any football game ever, right? I never, when I'm watching, you know, Arsenal play, you know, you know, a team of equivalent quality think, yeah, well, neither of these are as good as Madrid because it, it's a pointless frame of reference, right? I have never thought while watching Arsenal ladies, I wonder uh, which w- whether or not, you know, if Mesut we, Ozil would if, be able to... we could sub would, on, would, yeah. Would, yeah, it's, just, it's just, just such a... Uh, no one thinks about sport in that way. I do also think in terms of... Uh, yeah, one of the really interesting things about the viewing figures of the uh, new Doctor Who is although a very small number of uh, uh, boys have stopped watching, huge numbers of women who'd never watched it before are watching it and I do think that if women's football is done right it would not only uh, attract a large number of people who like football anyway but it would be a uh, yeah and then we would lose our male Greece uh, heaven for fent I'm going to make you take me to an Arsenal women's game but in the meantime uh, the Wolves is on at Theatre Royal Stratford East until some at so, until some point in the future so um, it is highly recommended And now for a section we like to call... <laughs> You're still eating the biscuits, sorry. We'll wait. And now for a section we like to call... <laughs> you Ask Us. This week, the editor of Waitrose magazine, food magazine, resigned, William Sitwell, after he, uh, a young female freelance journalist pitched him an article saying, I want to write something about veganism. Uh, he replied saying... Uh, why don't you write a series that says how we could kill vegans one by one, expose their hypocrisy? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, it, feed them red wine steak. I, and then she then went to um, BuzzFeed and said, I want to write a piece about the hatred of vegans, the sort of weirdly swivel-eyed hatred of vegans. Uh, and this would be a bit of evidence. And they said, oh, we don't want that piece, but we do want to run this as a news story, which I think is a bit, I hope she got a tip off me, is what I'm saying. I don't I mean, think. According to her Twitter, she didn't enter. Engage in the trash. I don't know why I believe this is a safe space to trash talk journalists, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, no one listens. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> but um, I'm going to engage in this fiction and all this stuff. I did find it a bit weird seeing loads of BuzzFeed journalists going, I can't believe the BBC hasn't credited us for it. It's just like, it's just like, um, well. Someone pitched you a feature that is literally their livelihood, and you went, "Yeah, we don't want to read the feature, but there's quite one newsworthy bit of it, which will just take off you." Which is, you yeah, know. it's one of those things where it's just like, I, I agree, there is a broader problem that the BBC often does. The BBC has, has learned, learned from reading Sky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. it's just like, oh, have you? Huh. 
Well done. Uh, but but on this specific one, it's just like, is this really a hill that you is the hill that you deserve this to yeah. be credited to you when you are comfortable dying on? So you and I have different opinions on this, I think. I think it's a clear cut case where he it was a misfiring joke. Sort of slightly weird thing to send someone, but vegans, it's not an identity, right? You've chosen to be a vegan. And the same way we don't have blasphemy laws anymore because you've chosen to uh, to follow a religion. You've chosen to be a vegan. You choose to be a cyclist, for example, another group of people who get very cross. Um, and I think a simple apology of, yeah, I kind of, that one misfired, would have been enough for me. I mean, so. So I partially uh, agree, right? I mean, I think it's one of those things where to kind of to capture the sheer comic crassness of it, it really is worth going to her Twitter account and reading the full kind of very, very straight pitch. And then actually the kind of very sort of like, okay, I'm going to join in on the joke response. Um, But I mean, I just think like, to me at least, although I think, you know, you know, and I obviously do not know about, you know, whether or not there are any other existing complaints in, 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 uh, in that magazine, right? This is a, a very sensible, as you know, someone who is bougie enough uh, to read Waitrose Food magazine, right? This is a very sensible idea for the type of feature that they do run that I think would sit very well, particularly seeing as they do have a new vegan range coming out and they are earnestly pushing on their mail list to anyone who mainly buys vegetables uh, from them. Um, yes, I guess and- the point is being editor of Waitrose Food magazine is not really the place to air your sort of are you triggered libs you kids are all snowflakes ideas because it's essentially an advertorial magazine for a posh I mean, supermarket. Thing, right? it's like, it's like you, you don't work for Steak Magazine, pal. You work for... Is that a magazine about steak? No, it's a magazine about vampire hunters. Of course it's a magazine about steak. I mean, not a real one. My point was... Oh, right, okay. I thought it would be such an obvious <laughs> an obvious point that I was making that only a moron <laughs> No, and like, yeah, I walked straight into it. <laughs> Right, sorry. If you, if you worked for a putative magazine that were like, you know, like ca- yeah, carcass magazine, yeah, then, right? Then fine, but yeah, it. I think it's one of those things where one. So I think there are a couple of uh, objections I have to the response. One, I actually think his judgment is just wrong, right? Uh, they they have got it, but not me, wrong enough to sack him. I mean, I agree with you. Actually, the realistically, Waitrose Food Illustrated could have run a, a feature on veganism. Um, two, it's an advertorial magazine, which is for a magazine which pro- overwhelmingly targets upper middle class shoppers. I, a large number of its both its target audience and the people it wants to win back uh, from Whole Foods, which has come over from the states, are people who are into veganism, vegetarianism, reduced that thing, and I can't say without a run up reduced vegetarianism. Yeah, that thing. Yeah, right. So, so it's one of those things where it's like Jared Ratner doing, you know, our mm. products are all crap. It's one of those things where it's just like, well, I feel sorry for you, but ultimately, like you work for a commercial food giant that needs to protect its interests, you can't slag off bits of your customer base. It's one of those things where just like, I mean, okay, so it's slightly different um, because um, there is obviously, at least in my mind, uh, uh, a moral difference between slagging off a diet of choice and slagging off, um, you know, poor people. But if someone went, you know, I want to do a rest thing about, you know, like, feed your family for a fiver. So you know those cards that Sainsbury sends? Yeah, I get a lot of food magazines. No, no, no. I'm just, I I'm, I can see where this analogy is going. And if I sent an email back to someone going like, lol, let's do an article about how instead we should kill poor people one by one. I just feel that's a bit like, if my auntie had balls, she'd be my uncle. Like it is, the like the, the difference between poor people and vegans is quite important there. It's important if you're doing it in your position as deputy editor of the New Statesman. I think it's not different if you're doing it as your perspective as editor of Sainsbury's magazine, right? If you went, yeah, we don't need anything for, you know, if it was basically like, you know, 
every every month I'll do a meal. In fact, I realize this actually is a Sainsbury's feature where I do a meal like use yeah like feed, yeah cook this meal for a fiver using Sainsbury's basic product. And the email factory feel like the only basics are the people who buy basics food, right? <laughs> it's one of those things where you just go, you can't slag off your customers, right? It would be, mm. yeah, so I actually think the, the NS metaphor would be if um, I was sent a pitch about, you know, like um, socially concerned uh, graduates who work in the public sector. And I sent an email back being like, how about a feature about what librarians have to do now they're unemployed or you know, how about a thing about Edgy. how retired teachers are but the thing is, I mean it would literally be an attack on a large chunk of our readers or our readers' parents, right? And I think that is why I also just feel like librarians are probably cool enough that they would shrug it off rather than being like, I mean, Oh I my god, this is if not like... <laughs> this is librarian <laughs> shaming. That's the bit I think is that for me, I think is I mean maybe this is why I'm coming at it the angle I am. I think there is a constant move online to turn things into identities that can be oppressed, which aren't. And I think being a vegan is a choice. I think being religious is a choice. I think that's very different to skin colour or gender or, um, you know, socioeconomic status, to which, you know what I mean? I just, my, I also, I think I remember, you know, writing about cyclists. I mean, those guys. Whew, I mean, they do. Yeah, it's they're a, angry. It's and yet they go through red lights all the time. They have, you know, but like everyone wants to kill them, right? It's a hard world being a cyclist is all I'm saying. But isn't most of the reason that people want to kill them because they're so larry sorry i nearly got taken out by two people who went straight through a red light and i looked them directly in the eye just, as they whizzed past my like face between cyclists and my bizarre decision to attack librarians yeah. and people who work in the hotels, we have basically attacked all of our readers oh we also have a swipe at journalists so anyway <laughs> who else? 10 readers who we have 10 listeners who we haven't insulted brexit's uh, also a bad idea don't vote conservative uh well so we have who have we uh praline chocolates are wildly overrated I maybe I hey maybe I really enjoy that Jamie's jerk cry Stephen maybe that's who I am actually so this so at long, the last time I saw Evan Davis very sadly he accused me fair enough of being a food snob in my yeah and he was just like you know if someone wants to make something called chocolate pesto that's okay oh, and it literally God. made me so angry <laughs> someone texted me saying why were you scowling on air for the first couple of minutes. <laughs> I hadn't realised how upset his I the idea. That you Tell me, chocolate thing. pesto isn't a real thing. It's not. No, because uh, the whole. Do you want to, what, what is what is the thing that they call basil pesto? It can't be pecorino and basil and chocolate, no, right? No, so it, pine nuts. So and, it must be pine nuts, basil leaves, and chocolate, uh, and pecorino. That sounds nice. Yeah, but my point is, is that the reason why you can call it that is that there are essential components of pesto, and the reason why jerk fries. <laughs> right. Good is there were there were essential ingredients of jerk that were not there. Well, I'm glad that we've cleared that all up. And if you would like to be personally offended by me or Stephen, why not drop us an email and we'll send you back a response about how you personally have done something wrong. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. If you are a subscriber to the New Statesman in print or digital, or indeed both, you get a free weekly email looking to the week ahead by Stephen in which he recommends films to you, often ones that he hasn't seen, often ones that he would like to see, but nonetheless, it's all entertaining. So you get an extra free email and early access to this podcast. So sign up at newstatesman.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.